Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and thanks so much for listening to the MTF podcast. Now, one of the things we like to do at Music Tech Fest is try and get a sense beyond what's happening right now in creativity and innovation and put it into the kind of context you only get when you can step back and look at it over time. For this reason, at MTF Stockholm, we made sure we included some genuine pioneers in music and technology. People have been working on this stuff for 50 years or more. Peter Jenner was a first-class economics graduate from Cambridge University back in the 60s, and by the age of 21, he was lecturing at the London School of Economics. After four years, and despite not knowing a great deal about the workings of the music industry at the time, he left his job to go and manage an upcoming band he liked. They were not terribly well-known, but they were interesting to Jenner because they used some unusual acoustic effects and experimental sounds in their music. That band was called Pink Floyd. Since then, he's also worked with T-Rex, Ian Dury, Roy Harper, The Clash, The Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, Robin Hitchcock, Baba Marl, Sarah Jane Morris, Denzel and Eddie Reader from Fairground Attraction, and perhaps most famously, Jenna's been the long-term manager of Billy Bragg. These days, he uses that experience to advocate for artists in his work championing digital rights and advocating for an international music registry. He joined us on stage and chatted about his career with MTF's Ottiliana Rollinson. But first, he had something to say about the BBC's R&D and the women pioneers of electronic music. From MTF Stockholm, this is Peter Jenner. Um, I just wanted to say that I found it really interesting that Henry was doing what he was doing. As one of the first things I did when I was working with the Pink Floyd was to go to the BBC's Radiophonics workshop, which was the people who developed all the, a lot of those sounds, which are, you know, like for Doctor Who, a lot of that stuff comes from the Radiophonics workshop, which I suspect is the uh, Henry is in the successor of that. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say that a lot of the flow of information which is in there is very interesting because we as the with the Pink Floyd we're interested because of having heard bits of Stockhausen and stuff like that so we were interested in avant-garde music and so we went to the radiophonic workshops where they were doing avant-garde music with sort of people like Delia Derbyshire and things so there's a sort of a continuity and I think just as a sort of final sort of note of um, as it were, my father was a vicar, so a bit of sort of religion in here, is don't underestimate the value of people like the BBC doing pure research. Because in, from there you get these things. There's no question that the Pink Floyd would not have happened without the BBC Radiophonics Workshop, albeit a small contribution. And I doubt if they ever knew that they were making that contribution. And I doubt if Stockhausen ever knew about the contribution he was making. So, you know, anyway. But it still happened, yeah. It happens. It's that sort of mix of stuff coming in and having the openness of brains to sort of see that that might be interesting. And with that said, for you guys who don't know who Peter Jenner is, he is a legend. Uh, He's a manager managing uh, groups like the Pink Floyd, and one is like, oh. <laughs> uh, also the Clash and many others. 
and uh, he's also been behind the mover and shaker behind for example 1968 the festival at Hyde Park and this is a man who has been at the eye of the storm for half a century now and it's a great honor having you here and to speak with you and no. for all of us to take part of it and with that said I am so curious as to what you have gained or learned from your life experience, how you see, analyze or tap in to the huge societal changes that you actually have been part of. Good God. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just do things. I think I've, I've always been sort of... Um, fairly uninhibited. I mean, I can only say like the Hyde Park concert. Why did we do Hyde Park concert? Well, first of all, I'd read that they did these hippie concerts. I was involved in hippie, early hippie movements in the UK. I'd read about hippie stuff going on in San Francisco where they did big open air concerts. I then walked across, subsequently, I was walking across Hyde Park with my, then, my, my wife, my late wife, and we saw a music stand, you know, music, you know, place where brass bands played. It was a sort of, you know, a, a, a round thing, you know, and brass bands would play there and there would be uh, uh, deck chairs. And this was really for old people to sit there and have uh, bands playing, brass bands playing umpa, umpa and sort of mi old military stuff and things like that. But what I thought was, hey, a stage in a park and that was what got me. I thought, right, why don't we do a popular music concert in Hyde Park? Because I was also at that stage beginning to manage the Pink Floyd, so that might be really good promotion for the band. So we could do a, a, a live free music concert in Hyde Park. Now, as these things are, I had certain connections from sort of weird family connections. And so I wrote to the Ministry of culture at the time, early on, this was in 65, 66, and said, why don't we do a, a concert in Hyde Park? Instead of just being military bands, why don't we do something for the young people? And the answer was yes. And they put on, they let, they, you know, they provided a stage. Now, what was the stage? The stage was the, the, uh, the sort of mint, the stage about that high, which they used for Scottish dancing. <laughs> But the point was, it was a stage. That's interesting, because it defined that a band was there. And then it was also it was a place called the Cockpit, which probably was originally a cockpit. It was by the Serpentine, and there's a sort of hill. It was a natural, sort of small natural amphitheatre. So it was a perfect place that the parks people got what we wanted to do, and they sussed that that was the place to go. And that's where we did the first concert in Hyde Park. And those concerts went spectacularly well to the ended up I mean about two years later or something or a couple of summers later to the the stones in Hyde Park which was probably the biggest uh, concert that there's ever been in London in terms of people probably and I think it had an enormous impact all those things like Glastonbury and the big festivals the idea of having lots of bands on a stage and having people just sitting down and being very relaxed about things and 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 having a very open view. So that was 
That was now. Why did I do it? I did it partly because I wanted to promote the acts I was working with. I was working with the Pink Floyd, be good promotion for them. I had some other bands I was working with, so they were the opening acts. So it was a, it was self-interested in some senses, but it was also saying, well, how can I use? How can we use what's available to promote our artists? How do we get over things? How do you, how do we develop things? And so for like the Floyd, it was the idea. How would we? develop the idea of what we were doing and put it into a, a broader environment, a sort of wider stage. So it's, it's just, if you can do it, do it. Yeah. And don't, you know, we didn't ask how much it was going to cost. It was free. We didn't pay the park anything. The park just did it because they thought it was a good idea. The bands did it for free because they thought it was a good idea. We did it for free because we thought it was a good idea. The police did it for free because <laughs> they thought it was a good idea. So I, I think, and that's part of why it was so great. And it's also why I mentioned the BBC because the BBC were doing things because they think they're so great. I mean, what, what you were talking about was clearly nothing to do with the development program. It was let this loony go off and do his crazy thing with the Lexus and see what he comes out with. And I think that is the spirit of rock and roll. That is what really is valuable. And that is what I've been involved in. It seems or like... I hope to be involved in. It seems like even just listening to you speaking about these things that your mind uh, works on uh, several dimensions or levels at the same time. And I'm curious as to, obviously you have been a very successful manager, you've done a great job and you have lasted for a very long time and uh, done great things in that arena. So the part, on the one hand, the business side, the industry side, then you have the creative artistic side, and then you also have the interpersonal side dealing with these people that I'm sure weren't just like easy breezy to have to, have to you know, uh, relate to all the time. So how do you sort of like summon all of that inside yourself? Oh, God knows, I just do it because it's fun. You know, I mean, I think that's the point. If you're doing, why are you doing it? In some senses, I've rarely done things to make money, but I've always hoped that it would make money. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm not a sort of holy Joe, but I, I, it's not sort of, you know, every now and then I try and plan to, you know, like if we we're doing a tour, you know, I'd think about, you know, what sort of audience we could expect and what sort of prices and what the costs would be. So in that sense, I can be a sort of rational human being. But in terms of what I do, it's something which appeals to me. So, you know, it's something which tickles my fancy in some way. And, and, and I guess I'm just, in, I just am self-indulgent. <laughs> uh, if someone would be a manager out here, what advice would you give them? My advice to anyone is only work with people you think are really great, or you really like, or you really think they're interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. some, be positive. And I think that when I become involved with people who I thought were going to make me money, they never have. <laughs> when you work with people because you want to work with them, then they've made me money. Right. And is there any particular like, like challenge over this uh, half a century and one particular sweet spot? I think what you're always looking for is something which is not like everything else. That's what I'm always interested in, something which is, uh, which is different, which has an originality, but which appeals to me, mm. but which isn't like another. It's, so it's not like another rock band, it's not like another sort of disco artist or whatever. It, it's something which, which sparks me or, or arouses my curiosity. 
And in this day and age, with, with the advances of, of the digital age and technology and so on, is there, and if so, what a difference from back in the day when you start, first started breaking ground and now in how we deal with artists and audiences? I think that the dealing with audiences is trying to do something which people like and getting them to know about it and getting them to come. I mean, that's a sort of pretty standard thing. What do you deal with is something which interests, interests you, interests me, which I can sort of work with and feel that I want to spend time. And I think probably the most important thing was that there was someone I could hang out with often, mm. you know, someone that we could talk about things. And, you know, like one of the artists I worked with a lot was Roy Harper, and he was a great uh, bird like. He, he was very keen on uh, birds and things. So I got an interest in birds and things. <laughs> with Billy Bragg, we were very involved with sort of trade unions and politics and minor strikes and things like that. So then you, it, it, it provides a different sort of interest structure. You know, with, uh, uh, with a clash, it was being involved with sort of... Uh, the whole notion of punk and being spat at and that whole thing and uh, of walking it like you talk it. I mean, that's one thing which I would think is really important to be a successful artist, walks it like he talks it. In other words, if you say I'm a man of the people, you better be a man of the people. Mm. There's no point in saying I'm a man of the people and then getting into your limousine and going off to your expensive <laughs> dinner. You better be a man of the people. And that it's by doing things which you want to do and which feel right that you often find the most successful things, you know. I mean, in a bizarre way, probably the most important thing that Billy did was to do lots of gigs for nothing during the miners' strike. Mm. You know, that we had set up that he would go anywhere to do a gig, providing they would pay his, his, his train fare and give him a place to sleep and a meal. Mm. And that was the fee. And then he'd go anywhere. And that was really important. So he went all around the countries of his art of people. And as a result of that, he would, he would um, stay at someone's house. So he got to know them. So he got to know the local people. So he built a sort of network of people who didn't necessarily particularly like his music, but they liked him. So then, therefore, they were interested in finding out more about his music and getting people. So in some senses, the, 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 a lot of the Billy Bragg thing was spread in that very mm. organic way early on. And, you know, at the, back to the BBC, the key, the key person was John Peel back in those days, if you were a new artist. And we had someone, I was working at, at a sort of record company, and Billy was sort of with the label, but I, you know, not without being, not very formally. And um, I didn't know how to do promo, but there was a guy from his, who was interested in his publishing, and he got together with me, and we said, oh, let's try and work on this together. So you do the promo, I said to him. And he, he then phoned up Billy a couple, a few days later, and said, Billy, John Peel wants a, a, a vegetable biryani. Get it for him. So John, Billy went out, got a vegetable biryani, took it round to the BBC, knocked on the door, went into John Peel's session, you know, because some, I probably with the, the, the plugger helped, went in and gave him a, a vegetable biryani. <laughs> John Peel always remembered that, and John yeah. Peel was always supportive of Billy, Billy Bragg because of that. And it's that sort of thing which you never would have got from a professional promotion person. Right. They would have taken John Peel out for an expensive meal. Yeah. 
But the idea that the artist would go out and buy a vegetable biryani and bring it round to the BBC, that put it onto a human scale. Mm. I think that's probably very important. And that comes then to also, could, uh, in this day and age, do you think that a person, an artist, can become commercially successful, granted that they have something really genuine and, and they have a talent in what they are doing, can they become commercially successful analog, not engaging in social media, or is that something that is just part of the game right now? What do you think? I suspect you have to be involved in social media in some way or another. It's like, you know, could you have ever been a successful artist in the 60s without relating to the music papers? Mm. No. In the end, no. You start maybe, so then they pick up on it, then maybe their second round. But I think that in some way the social media, w w maybe it's not from you communicating out there. Maybe it's because social media picks up that they've heard someone and they think it's something mm -hmm. they talk about it. And then maybe they organize the artist to come and do something. with. It's that sort of uh, interaction between mm -hmm. things which is interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's a sort of like, I'm going to advertise... I'm doing a gig, it's going to cost you so much at the door. That, in a way, is something we can all deal with, but it's not very interesting. Mm. It's when you have something which is more sort of organic, then it becomes much more interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started doing things with the uh, London Free School back in the 60s, which was some sort of strange hippie conglomeration. We were all just out of university and we were going to change the world. And we'd read about what was happening in, in California, and so we were doing all, all, all this stuff. And so my father was a vicar, a, a, a clergyman. He had a, a parish, he had a parish hall, and he, as part of what he did, he, he used to organise dances or youth clubs because that's what you did if you were a vicar and you hoped to <laughs> catch some of those people and get them to come to church and put money in the collection. And, and generally, you know, the spiritual thing as well. Yeah. I mean, not just the money. But the, the money was a consideration. And um, it was that sort of... Th the idea that you could get money on the door for things if you could get the community in. So he would get the people from the parish who wanted to come to a whist drive would all give some money and that would give a little bit of money to the church and they'd sell teas and sandwiches or something. And so that all helped fund the church, his church activities. So in some similar way, when I was with the London Free School, we were trying to reach out to the Notting Hill area when it was really slummy and try and see if we could get some sort of social, educational, spiritual thing going, social, educational thing going. And what we realised after a bit that we could all sit around and talk about it, but we didn't have any money, so we couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, then I said, well, look, there's a church hall right in the middle of the area. So why don't we do a gig there? So, oh, that's what I did. So we did a gig in that church hall, which is right in the middle of Notting Hill. And... That was the first UFO, which became the whole sort of underground scene and, and sort of from, you know, in London, the whole hippie stuff revolved around that event because we all came in, everybody sort of knew each other. And that was the thing. So 
What do we want? If we're having some people come there, we better have something for them to come to. So we'll put a band on. Who, what, who, who should we get? Oh, I said, I don't know. I, I, there's this band that I've seen. I, I think I've been to see them and I could get them to come over. And so that was the Pink Floyd came over. Mm. So the Pink Floyd were the band that was playing for these people who are all these sort of hippies who are organizing some sort of social scene. Another thing we organized there was the Notting Hill Carnival was one of the early things that we did around there. I don't know how much we really did it, but it was something we were aware of and we stimulated, and not just us, it was other people as well. But so, if you have an environment and you respond to ideas and you just do them, mm -hmm. I mean, like what he's doing with Alexa, right. just doing things, he doesn't know what he's doing. That's what's so great. You don't know what you're doing, you just do it and see what happens. Yeah. And it's a bit also what you mentioned earlier, how the essence hasn't changed, it's just how we do it in some ways yes and now unfortunately we have run out of time i want to highlight something for you who have an interest in the following grab peter jenner and speak to him because he's very passionate and knowledgeable about yet another subject and that is collecting data so that you artists can be paid this is very very important because we all need to put bread on the table right yeah. and uh, jenner uh, Peter Jenner knows a lot about this and have many thoughts of this. So if this uh, is something important to you, please speak to him. And with that said, let's give... I'm, I'm just going to say, yeah. if you don't register in some way and keep, a, keep some identification on what it is you've done and who's done it, you will never get paid. If you've got some sort of identification and you've got it sort of registered in some way, somehow, you have a chance that if it's successful and people like it and they listen to it, then you will get paid or you'll better keep hold of what it is that you're doing and building it and developing it. But that's a, a whole thing. I can sit down and talk for hours about <laughs> data and registries and things like that. That's what I'm doing now with the government in yeah. the UK. We're, doing, we're trying to work out what sort of registries we need so that people in 2025 will get paid. In other words, what's a sort of structure which can maybe adjust to the changes that will happen mm -hmm. between now and 25 and still be relevant? Great. Peter Jenner, thank you so very much. Thank you. That's Peter Jenner, and that's the MTF podcast for another week. Hope you're enjoying these. Thanks so much for listening. And you know you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the usual places. We're Music Tech Fest, wherever you go. Easy to find. And, of course, share, like, review, subscribe on any of those, and we'd be very grateful. But do come and say hi. Talk soon. Bye.